I'm Justin Noda. And I'm Kyle Green. And you're listening to Mortgages, eh? A show designed to educate industry professionals and satiate the mortgage nerds. Underwriting, investing, getting the deals done while having a few laughs along the way. Morning, bud. Morning, bud. What are we talking about today? Financing investor clients. We are talking about financing investor clients today. And luckily enough, we have you. Uh, I know you have like 15 years experience doing this specific type of financing, working with these specific types of clients. So you're very experienced on it. What we want to do is lean into how you, of course, look at the clients, but also what's your strategy, right? What's your strategy behind these? Because from someone who hasn't been at that level of investor knowledge, those clients are out there and they do contact the everyday broker to say, hey, I have 5, 10, 15, 20 rental properties. I'd like to buy that 21st. Can you help me? <laughs> yeah. Right? And most of the times you think about what's available on the broker side and you say no. Yeah. Or you think about who you're going to be competing against, right? Yeah. Which is the Kyle Greens of the world and the people who have been in this industry for one, two, three years that get that call, you're not going to be able to compete, right? So it's either you have to either have the knowledge or know where to get it or know what deals to move forward with and what deals to not. Yep. So from a strategy and from a high level point, if you can expand on your specific experience with that, um, I'm sure everyone would love to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Disclaimer, financing investor clients, as you've alluded to, is tough. <laughs> it's really tough. And you know, I have a lot of, of other brokers that have come up to me and said, oh, I, like, I really like, I want to do a, a presentation on financing investor clients and, and how to do that and how to, how to build that and grow that. Are you sure? <laughs> Are you sure <laughs> that you want to do that? They're, the clients are a lot of work. Interestingly, my average mortgage size is probably smaller than most Vancouver mortgage brokers. Really? Yeah. It's actually smaller than most. Yeah. Because we're financing mostly investor clients. And so if we're doing a lot of investment properties that year, then usually an investment property is a condo or it's it's something that's smaller. You're not going to finance a $2 million detached home in mm. North Vancouver and do that as a rental property. So you know, there's there's a, actually a lot of reasons why financing investor clients can be low margin, especially if you look at it from a deal-to-deal basis. In general, the mortgage sizes are smaller um, and also they're way more work. And so, wait a second, you're doing more work and getting paid less. And by the way, the clients also love to talk to you about all things about everything, you know. <laughs> what do you think? Where do you think rates are going? You know, um, how how should we structure this? Should I buy this in a personal name or a company name? And all of these conversations that come up. So, I do think that it makes sense if you're going to own it, then own it. But you got to really like figure out a way of of positioning yourself and entrenching yourself as an expert so that you can speed things up and make it work for you. Yeah. So far, it doesn't sound very appealing. So far, you're getting a smaller mortgage than you would if you're doing an owner-occupied property or maybe a single rental property and you have twice the work and a whole bunch more questions. So Totally, right? Yeah. Yeah, The the, the flip side of it is in in theory, and this is, frankly, was a lot easier earlier in my career, but if you get the clients in the door and you set up a game plan for them, in theory, they could buy a property once every year. And I look at some clients' portfolios, I'm like, yeah, I helped them buy every one of these seven or eight properties. You know, that's $4 million of funding over seven years or whatever the time frame is. It's a volume game. It is a volume game and the the relationships, they're very sticky clients. They're not going to just randomly talk to their bank or another broker and you're like, I can't believe they walked on me because there's no way they want to start fresh with somebody. And sometimes it's actually good when they start fresh with somebody else and like, oh my God. Like, this is way too complicated. This other person doesn't know what they're doing and I should go back to my broker, yep. you know? So they're very sticky clients, which is the nice nice part about it. But I've had some clients where, <laughs> I remember one client a really long time ago, I was doing a, a like a $120,000 mortgage for this person. She's buying a <laughs> rental property. And then I realized, I'm like, oh, so uh, you bought a new home. It's like, yeah, yeah. And uh, and it's like big, fat $800,000 mortgage on the home. And I'm like, oh, is there a reason you didn't use me for that? Oh, oh I thought you specialized in the investor and, and like the rental properties. I'm like, so you didn't use me for the $800,000 mortgage, <laughs> but you're using me for the $120,000 mortgage. Thank you so much. No so kidding. make sure that the messaging is clear. I do residential mortgages too. You know, I do, I want to do the residents, you know? 
actually made it very clear to the client too. It was like, no, that's actually the one I want. <laughs> I do the small ones so that I can get your residence. Yeah. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So let's talk about why they're tough. Sure. Because, you know, you hear about like, oh, well, why, why is this difficult? One of the first things you're running into is the number of properties owned in total and also the number of mortgages with that bank. In general, banks don't like to finance clients that have more than five properties. And that can be either five with them or five in total. Uh, most lenders are five in total. And then there's some uh, some banks and, and other lenders that might go, well, five with us or four in some cases, uh, but you can go up to 10. And there's the occasional lender that says, however many you want, go for it, but no more than four or five with us. But that's very, very rare. So uh, in general, the number of properties owned is a, a tricky thing. As an example, to put some emphasis on this, I had a client that had seven rental properties. Five of them were paid off. Five of them were paid off, free, free and clear. And um, we had a few different banks that would not finance them for their next purchase. Really? Really. Why? Because the number of properties, that little box that you have to tick off as an underwriter, they could not tick it. The client owned more than five properties, even though all five of them were paid off. Interesting. So, and sometimes you're going to push and sometimes you get the exception and sometimes you're going to push and you won't get the exception. It's, it's ludicrously crazy how difficult some of these deals can be, even for really strong clients. The other main, main issue here is debt servicing. And that's actually the biggest problem that you'll usually find is that as the portfolio grows, a phrase I like to say is that most properties in your portfolio will be a net negative, not a net positive on your application. And that's because lenders are only using between usually 50 to 80% of the rental income on every property. And usually when you buy a property with 20% down, you're usually just cash flow neutral. In fact, a lot of properties are cash flow negative in today's market. So you're in a situation where each property is negative according to the lender. And it might even be a negative according to the borrower too, when they look at their budget. And then you on, on top of that, you add in that it's not just 50 to 80% of the rental income because there's actually three different or core methodologies of how lenders treat rental income. There's the add to income method, there's the offset method, and then there's DCR or other worksheet methods. And most worksheets are usually some kind of rental offset type of methodology. Uh, but I want to talk about add to income for a second because it gives a client a little bit of an, a better understanding of how this works in a clear enough way, okay? So let's say you had $1,000 in rental income. If you are using a 50% add-to-income method, which a lot of lenders use, they take 50% of that income, so $500, add it to the borrower's income, and then they only want to use 44% of the borrower's income to service debts. So the $1,000 turns into $500, which turns into $220. So out of the $1,000, you get $220 a month to service debt. And so if you look at how much of a mortgage that could service... in rental income services a mortgage of like 30 grand, which is nothing, right? Now, if you look at a rental offset, many lenders will use a rental offset of about 80%. And usually the rental offsets, by the way, are not for the property you're purchasing. Uh, The government, by the way, really doesn't like rental offsets on subject rental properties. They're fine for whatever reason on non-subject properties in the portfolio, but subject property, that's why we've seen and noticed over the last few years a tightening of this where very few lenders are offering rental offsets is because uh, OSFI really, really doesn't like them, by the way. So a rental offset, those that do use it, if you use an 80% rental offset, then they would take 80% of the thousand, so $800, and use that $800 to offset all the expenses. So in this case, you're actually truly using $800 to service the debt. So 50% add to income versus an 80% offset, $220 a month versus $800 a month. Big difference. Huge, right? It's almost four times more. And then you get into uh, DCRs. So DCR stands for debt coverage ratio. And the lenders that use it, just so everybody knows, I won't go into a deep dive on this, but DCR is actually something that stems from the commercial lending landscape. And commercial lending, typically the borrower is not getting financing. It's the property itself that's getting the financing or a business. And in those cases, they're looking for a debt coverage ratio, usually of about 1.1 or 1.2 to one for income to debt. So if the expense on on the property, including the mortgage, including all the other expenses, was $1,000 a month, then they'd want to see at least $1,100 to $1,200 of of income coming in. And the biggest challenge usually with the DCR method is that the lenders are using their own calculations for expenses. 
if you look at it, a lot of the time they'll throw in 5% vacancy. It's like, this is Vancouver. You know what the vacancy rate is in Vancouver <laughs> is and what it has been for like 20 years. Yeah. But let's use 5%, you know? Uh, oh, and by the way, you have to stress test that interest rate that you're getting. So that jacks, jacks it up too. So very difficult for a client to find, especially in a major urban center, with 20% down payment and their own cash flow is positive by 10 or 20%, that actually, you know, 0.1 or, or 0.2. Not to mention you have to factor in the lender's expenses and you have to factor in a stress test. So a, de- a DCR often requires uh, a much larger down payment, which is what we see in the commercial space as well. So those are the three uh, methods that you see a lot of the time on the rental income method. And then the the other interesting point here. It's not as black and white of an answer, but you're going to find that if you've ever dealt with a client that has a number of properties and the debt servicing and everything works, you send it into the lender and they still decline it. It's usually because there's a lack of liquid assets. And there is no specific rule for this. Every lender has different rules and most of them are not black and white, by the way. Usually it's gray. Uh, But a good general rule of thumb is at least 30 to 50 grand of liquid assets per property owned in the portfolio. For liquid assets, um, I know that's a question that I get lots, whether it's for a net worth program or something something other type of program that's offered by a lender. Liquid net does not include equity in real estate. Yeah, that's right. That's, that, that's not liquid, yeah. according to them. So. Yeah. And yeah. that's something that obviously, especially in Vancouver, right? You have people who bought here 10, 15, 20 years ago that have one, two, three, four million dollars in real estate um, in equity, but they're not counting that as liquid. Liquid would be cash yep. investments. Yep. Oh, as, yeah. as long as you can access them at your own investments. And, and even RSPs, in some cases, you can make the argument that, hey, if you needed to, you could withdraw withdraw the funds and pay the 30% withholding tax on it, et cetera. So it, the, the bank just wants to see that there's a fallback is the term they use a lot. And in general, if you own a large number of properties, the problem is that in theory, more negative things can happen to you at the same time. So I've had some clients that have five properties and one of them just goes vacant randomly. Another one, there's a special levy on the condo for $50,000. There's another one that uh, all of a sudden the, a tenant trashed the place and then they have to they have to put money into it to renovate it, to re-rent it before they can earn income on, on it again. And it could be a $100,000 cash call, right? So that's why the lenders like to see that this fallback. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so on these type of files then, is this consistently more people who are business for self or do you see a lot of people that are employees do it? Or what What have you found? Yeah, you know, that's the other issue too, is it's not just the functions of the lender policies that makes these tough. It's actually the borrowers too. And it's tricky because the borrowers usually think, my credit is pristine. <laughs> you know, I am perfect. I am great. I make good money. Yes, you, you fit the box. But what you're trying to do does not fit the box, right? But it, it just so happens that a lot of these, these clients, a disproportionate number of my clients are are self-employed because they're also real estate investors. And so if you know a, a, um, a salaried employee is going to have some kind of pension and, and whatnot, and a lot of the time, self-employed borrowers are trying to create their own pension yep. by buying real estate. So that's that's typically what you'll find. Yeah, exactly. Me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 100%, <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we're all, we're all you know brokers. We're all in that box, yeah. right? And what better way to convey to a client why they should be buying real estate than if you're doing it yourself, by the way. It's really hard to tell a client, hey, you should buy rent, rental properties. How many do you own? Well, none yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, maybe you should buy some properties first. And What and- a great potential episode coming up too, though, right? If we teach people who are business for self, whether it's a commission-based like we are, how to create their own quote-unquote pension. 100%, right? right? That'd be a good one to, to lean in on for sure. Couple other points here. They often wind up buying company names, which is much more challenging. Their corporate structure can be more complex. A tax strategy is to use a HELOC for the down payment because whenever you borrow money to invest, the interest portion of the payments is tax deductible. Is that what is it? The Smith maneuver? Oh, it is. Yeah, you got it, Justin. <laughs> I wanted you. I wanted you to dunk that one. I, got, I was just L U L U baby. <laughs> I saw the glint in his eye, and yeah. I didn't want to disappoint him. Oh, I love the Smith maneuver, baby. <laughs> Yeah, so the the Smith maneuver obviously is a is a great strategy, and it's, and we won't talk about that because I think it's an it's it's its own topic. Absolutely, but uh, but that unfortunately having that line of credit limit even there increases the debt servicing with most lenders because yep. most lenders use the limit, not the balance, and so that's another problem. You want to access more capital, and it gets us into this weird fight of should we just rack up the line of credit and make it as big as possible so you can buy five properties, 
But if we do that, we're going to limit our options on the purchases. So it's there's a lot of tightrope walking for sure. And so, yeah, there's a lot of issues just with the borrowers themselves, especially because they think they're perfect and they're not. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So these are usually A clients then? Yes, and almost always, yep. So what is their, what's their biggest holdup then? How do you explain to them why it's so difficult? Yeah, I mean, usually I find if you can explain the why to a customer in a way that makes sense, and with authority, then they'll usually listen to you. Underwriting is sales. Underwriting is sales, baby. There you, you go. go. I got the glints back. I yeah. see the glint again. Yeah. <laughs> Underwriting is sales. And you know, it's funny because I'll have a client that uh, that comes up and says, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And okay, great. Which bank are you talking to? And they'll say, oh, I'm talking to this bank. Okay, great. So here are their policies. And I'll start to rattle off the policies. So you're probably going to have to put 35% down with that bank because of this and this and this. But I have other lenders that I think I can get around it by doing this and by, by doing that. And they're like, okay, yeah. where do I sign? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so you can eliminate your competition before they be even become competition by, by knowing the underwriting policies. Underwriting is sales. <laughs> <laughs> and the glints in my eye now yeah. as well. So over this, you've been doing this as long as I have, yep. 16, 17 years now. And I know for a good chunk of that, it has been investor-driven and it has been investor-focused. So along that line, as many tips and tricks as far as underwriting that I've gotten from a non-investor side, I know that you've collected a whole bunch of useful tricks inside this specific topic. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of your favorite? The favorite ones are the, are the basic ones, actually. Just amortize all of the debt over 30 years. It's a really simple trick. But even when the customer, if you're looking looking at their portfolio and you notice, oh, your residence has a $100,000 mortgage outstanding and it has a $3,000 a month payment, that's holding us back. And actually, with when I'm uh, underwriting the deal in, um, in Velocity, I'll, I'll go in there and I'll say, what if I was to change this and re-amortize it over, over 30 years. I just literally click in the system, pay off the uh, mortgage with the $3,000 a month payment, and then put in what a payment would be if it was amortized over 30 years at current interest rates and just see if now my deal works. It's a really simple trick to just see if, if I can tweak things. But you should set up every debt for the investor client on a 30-year AM. And so this is when you're restructuring the residents, when you're getting them approved for a rental property. And one of the the tough things is some banks will say, well, we're charging a 0.1% premium for a 30-year instead of a 25-year, as an example. Or in some cases, you can even do a rental insurable, but then the the maximum amortization is 25 years. From a future qualification perspective, the 30 years better. Also, from an interest deductibility perspective and a tax-saving perspective, the 30-year is better. And so explaining that to the customer, I think, is really important. So when you're talking about amortizing all the loans, you're not talking about just real estate debt. Yeah. You're talking about all of it. All of it. Credit cards. it all in there. Car loans. Yep. The brick. The brick. Right? Oh, God, (laughs) yeah. Not a lot of my A clients have brick financing, but yes, you know, if you do, I tell you what, going back, if we had a whole thing on credit bureaus, which we're probably going to have, credit bureaus are something that we want to discuss. There has been no less mess ups that I've seen than those brick $7 balances that people never paid off because they thought they paid everything off. And then that one balance got sent to collections and they didn't get notified. And then they're, Credit bureau went in the crapper. Oh, yeah. Um, I've seen that ton. So I just wanted to skew off on that because it's... Let me go on on a really quick tangent because I've got an interesting story Do in you? that. Okay. I was a year into into brokering and I had a client whose credit was decimated by one of those stupid things. Yeah. And uh, the problem was he had called in the middle of the billing period to ask what the outstanding balance was so he could pay it off in full. And they told him what, what it was as of that date. Yeah. But the problem was that the billing period hadn't hadn't expired. So some interest had accrued in the first half of that billing period. And it was like a dollar and 16 cents. And then he was he was calling to figure out what the amount was so he could pay it off because he was moving. And then he moved. And then he wanted he came to us seven or eight months later, wanted to buy a home. It's like, sorry, bud, you don't qualify. He's like, what are you talking about? His credit was decimated because he owed a dollar and sixteen cents to the brick. Wow! So this episode is not sponsored by the brick. It is not, <laughs> not at all. It's <laughs> that's interesting. And it, again, it puts back to not only tricks as far as the financing investor clients, but also tricks as far as managing your own credit bureau. Yeah. Right? Providing this kind of information to agents who can provide it to clients is something that is important to us. So the fact that that trick 
applies more to credit bureaus than to this, does it lead you to any other tricks that you might have still in the wheelhouse that you use today as far as investor clients go? Yeah. Well, really quickly, I want to touch on the math here on car loans because a lot of the client, the time clients are going to say, well, my car loan is at you know 1.9% interest financing or whatever it is. So you're, you're probably, not probably, you may be up against it. Sometimes the car loans are more expensive, sometimes they're, they're less, but the payment is the key, right? And so if you look at it, uh, one of the issues that you'll, you'll run into is that a car loan might be a $25,000 loan with a $500 a month payment. Well, if we were to compare that to the qualifying payment on a mortgage for 25 grand, I always try to remember based on current math and, and sometimes I even have this uh, as a little sticky in my computer and I'd put in what is the $100,000 qualifying payment today? And it's more difficult now because of course the stress test has moved around, but it used to be really easy, 100, 100 grand, 525, on a 25-year or a 30-year and whatever that payment was, you know? Remember the good old days? That's almost the good old days, isn't it? It's yeah. pretty close now. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and so I'd always have that payment because then if I'm going through it, I say, okay, so the car loan is $500 for 25 grand. And if the payments per, for $100,000 in a mortgage are six fifty dollars a month, then I know that the payment, if I was to throw that car loan onto the mortgage, it would be basically six fifty dollars divided by four. So it'd be, you know, basically 175 bucks, roughly, a little bit less than that. Uh, I know that I can then create all of that borrowing power for the client. And so if I'm, I'm doing some quick math in my head, if the payment's going to go from 500 down to 175, I'm creating about $325 of borrowing power, which is exactly half of 650, which means it's about 50 grand of borrowing power I've created for the client just by doing a debt swap. Really simple you know, calculations here. So being able to uh, to manipulate the numbers in a way to create some extra borrowing power, especially because that add to income and those offsets, et cetera, it's just every property is going to be a drain on the on the borrower. And so usually trying to roll up and consolidate all that, uh, that debt into the mortgage is key. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the next section. I call it tricky tricks. <laughs> <laughs> Because the last the last section was just the basic tricks, okay? So the, a lot of that stuff is the basic stuff. Okay, so I remember learning this trick a number of years ago when I was going through a deal and I was trying to figure out why this deal wouldn't work. I had a client that had a, a property fully paid off and I was trying to get a mortgage for 80% financing on the on a new purchase and I couldn't get the, the debt servicing to work. And then I kind of thought, well, what if, what if I put some money on the property that was paid off and borrowed less on the new purchase. And this is a tricky trick because it does two things. Number one, even if you are using a lender that uses an offset, which you'd say, oh, that's using more rental income. That's great. Guess what happens to an offset if there's a surplus of income? It gets added to the borrower's income. And then guess what happens? It gets watered down. So you've actually created, if you have a surplus of any properties in the portfolio, it becomes add to income, income, and then that gets watered down. So one of the tricks is to look at any of your properties that are creating a surplus and you want to balance those out so that they're either neutral or actually moved into the negative. And then you bring that extra money that you've borrowed against that property into down payment on the future property that is in the negative. So because what ends up happening is a hundred grand borrowed against that property is not going to have as negative of an impact as 100 grand borrowed on the new property that you're trying to finance up to 80% because you're basically just adding money on to a property that's basically an add to income and uh, you're getting less of the income get watered down effectively. Um, so long story short, without going into the math and very specific examples, which would bore everybody here, anybody that wants to learn more about this, I'm happy to give you an example You know, in uh, in, in more detail about it. But high level, if you have a property that has add to income uh, or has is basically generating a surplus, you want to shift that debt over to uh, to properties that are heavily in the negative. So that's a a little trick to uh, to use. Tricky trick number one. Tricky trick number one. Tricky trick number two. Yeah. Okay. So I, I alluded to this in the in the basic tricks, but not only just on the uh, properties that you're securing financing on, but go through the client's portfolio and see what other properties their payments are over the amount per hundred grand. So if I go through and I see a property for $200,000 and the payments are two grand a month in today's climate, I would say, well, wait a second. I know that the payments would be more like six fifty dollars a month if I re restructured that debt and redid it. And so 
if I did that, six fifty per hundred grand, that's only thirteen hundred dollars a month instead of two thousand. That's seven hundred dollars of borrowing power that I could create for myself. So again, you can you can start to restructure debts. Now, I will say that this is not as easy or as good of a maneuver to do in a interest rate environment where rates are going up. This is obviously a lot better to do when rates are going down. It's a lot easier to uh, to make the math work when you say yes, you're going to pay a penalty but you're going to recoup the penalty in interest savings by redoing the mortgage. It's a lot harder to tell a client, yeah, you're going to pay a penalty, get rid of that lower rate, and then take a higher rate. So you're going to get dinged twice on this on this maneuver, right? So it's a lot easier to do in a flat or declining interest rate environment to restructure debt. But, but it also allows you to go in and say, oh, in order to get you financed on the purchase, I have to redo one or two of your mortgages. And by the way, maybe we'll add a line of credit to that so you have some money available for future borrowing. It's frankly, this is usually easiest when you're doing portfolio planning to say, hey, client, I've noticed you've got a mortgage coming for a new one a year from now. So here's the strategy. We're going to redo the residence and get you enough money for one property now. And then next year, when this rental comes up for renewal, we're going to redo that and bring it up to 80% financing and get you a home equity line of credit. And that's going to be the down payment for the rental property number two purchase you're going to make next year. You know. So earlier in the episode, you said that lots of the times your average mortgage amount is less. Yes. But with the restructuring of certain debts, you are refinancing other properties that they may have in their portfolio. That's right. Which you are getting paid on as well. Yes. So again, it's that volume game that we were talking about, right? You're not just looking at that $120,000 or that $200,000 mortgage. Now you're looking at refinancing that $300,000 and that that other $200,000 to get access to the down payment needed to purchase this or future properties. Yeah, and so you can kind of look at it as revenue per client is probably higher, yeah. but revenue per transaction is lower. But if you can do two transactions for customers at the same time, then you know it's still a lot of work, but you only had to do source one client to do the two transactions. Right? Interesting. Yeah. So it's it's it, it definitely has its pros and cons for sure. And you know what? I should also mention too, when we were looking at this, another tricky trick is that when you're financing a property, And whenever you're getting financing on that subject property, you have to stress test the money that you're borrowing on that mortgage. Sure. But any money on an existing non-subject property to that lender is not stress tested. Okay. So going back to the situation where maybe we're refinancing a clear title property to borrow more money on it and then use that for down payment on another property. Well, not only are we balancing out those offsets so we're not having any of that money get added to income because there's a surplus? But also, you may also be borrowing an extra hundred grand at contract rate instead of stress test rate when you're doing it that way too. And so I remember really early on, I think this was 2011, I think I was like a couple of years into the business at this time and I couldn't get this deal to work. And I realized, oh, what if I just take the two deals to two different lenders? And then each of them don't stress test the opposite deal, right? (laughs) And then it's like, oh, perfect. And each lender said, yeah, sure. And it's like, I mean, you'd think that the one bank would just say, just give me both. But I did find, and a phrase I used a lot, is that the salespeople aren't running the show anymore. It's It's the risk management guys that are running the show. And that was probably a pre versus post subprime crisis. It used to be the salespeople saying, give me the deal, I'll make it work. And then subprime crisis hit. It's like, yeah, no, it's got to fit the box now. So Mm -hmm. that was definitely a big, big shift. Interesting. One of the things that I was going to ask is where you learned all these tricks. And I think you just just answered it, right? Going back to 2011, you learned it by doing it. Yeah. Right? You learned it from trial and error, from digging into files, from looking at what works here and what works here, and then figuring out your own ways. You definitely didn't have a YouTube channel to look for. <laughs> nope. You definitely didn't have a podcast uh, to be able to rifle through the the episodes and say, oh, that top producer or that top guy in the investment world said this and this and this. I'm going to try it. Yep. Yep. We talked about you know whether having a math background or a good understanding helps. And I've always said that it's a good understanding of basic math, not you don't need to understand how to divide infinity by infinity to be a good mortgage broker, but it is having a good understanding of basic math. And so sometimes what I do is I just go through the file and just figure out what are the pain points that I'm running into? Why is my deal not working? And figure out like what payments are are very high? What's affecting the debt servicing the most? And you go through it and you see, oh, well, this is affecting it a lot. 
can I change it? And sometimes you can't. Sometimes the client just has a big fat mortgage in the residence and that's what's getting in the way and reamortizing it, lowering the rate, whatever, none of it's going to fix it. But sometimes you look at it, it's like, well, maybe I actually can fix that. So focus with the on the big items first, figure out what's affecting the debt servicing the most, and then see if there's anything you can do to tweak it. And that's, that's how a lot of these tricky tricks came about. That's awesome. <laughs> so I know we're going to get into a little bit more of the strategy for the actual clients, Yeah. but small business lending. Yeah. Right. Small business lending and commercial lending is bigger inside of this type of wheelhouse than it is anywhere else. And I know you have a lot of experience with that. I'd love to hear a little bit about it before we move on. Sure. Yeah. So you're, you're going to find that some clients just get to a certain size where you just can't get them financing anymore. And eventually you have to move to commercial. And that does happen. One interesting thing is small business is a weird little spot that kind of hangs out between commercial and, and residential. Yeah. And not a lot of people actually understand what the heck small business does. But small business often it lies in the middle spot where certain lenders will underwrite it kind of quasi-commercial or end quasi-residential. And some of them will use a debt coverage ratio, but they use a surplus of personal income to top up the debt coverage ratio to get you up to 75% loan to value, as an example. Some of the other lenders actually underwrite these small business deals like they underwrite their residential deals. And they only charge, you know, half a percent higher on the rate, but they'll do it in a company name. They'll do it in a holding company, an operating company. They'll do it where they might be using some corporate net income to qual like there's a lot of weird stuff or client that has 20 properties. You know, I was, I was working on a deal recently and it didn't quite work because the interest rates kept going up every like week yeah. <laughs> for a while. <laughs> um, we're so close, but we almost had a uh, an arrangement where we're going to refinance eight properties with a small business lender all at the same time. And the client had 15 properties, I think it was, in total. And it was going to be about $2.3 million. And we're charging, we're going to charge a 2% fee on, the, on that deal too. Wow. I mean, it's very complicated. It took hours of undoing. And unfortunately, it, not, it didn't actually work out because the interest rates kept going up and, and it was just barely working, barely working, not quite working and, and uh, difficult to do. But... Long story short, I think small business commercial is probably its own episode too. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to go down this path, I think you really need to understand what they can do because they basically have the flexibility of commercial where they can understand more complex corporate structures. They can, they can um, get around the maximum number of properties, rules, those kinds of things. And then and it's a lot easier to, uh, to bypass. Um, I know you want to move on, so I'm going to hit this really quickly. But I had one other item that I wanted to touch base on, which is... Lenders that use rental worksheets, some of them will do two, one of two things. So first of all, and the lender that uses a debt coverage ratio method, one of the benefits of using, um, using them here is if you have properties where there's a bunch of properties that are surpluses and a bunch of properties that are negatives, a DCR typically, or the right worksheet, will actually balance all the numbers out first and then generate a, a figure for you. So let's let's give you an example. If you had a property that had $1,000 surplus and then another property in the portfolio that has $1,000 negative, you don't want that because the $1,000 surplus gets added to the income and then you get to use $440 of the surplus. But then that $440 surplus can't service the $1,000 liability, right? It doesn't actually balance out. But when you're using a lender that uses a debt coverage ratio or some lenders take the the um, the negatives and then actually deduct it from income. So there's a few lenders like MCAP, uh, Merricks, et cetera. Their worksheets actually uh, balance these out a little bit by taking the, the negative and then deducting it from income. Which is more beneficial. It was way better. Yeah. yeah, it's much better than adding it to the liability because you basically need almost two, two and a half times more income to service that liability in that case than the amount of the liability itself. Um, so that's something to uh, to look into is is understanding the inner workings of exactly how these worksheets work. And so if you can see, oh, there's this has a surplus, this has a deficit, uh, sometimes you can use a different uh, different lender that uh, that has a better way of balancing those out. Good point. That's a tricky trick. That is My a tricky trick. tricks are all done. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So we just want to move on to a couple points. We just kind of wanted to have you maybe break down a certain number of specific points that you might advise a client on a strategy moving forward with this type of process. Yep. And on strategy... That is probably the one thing that that when you're talking to a new investor client or a seasoned investor client, if you start to talk to them about how you're going to develop a strategy for them, 
Oh, baby, you got them. You've got them. <laughs> because most of the time, whoever they're talking to doesn't talk strategy at all. Yeah. They don't talk about the strategy. So you always ask the customer, where do you want to take this? Where do you see yourself in five or 10 years from now? How many properties are you owning? What is your your end goal or objective here? Because you start to ask those questions. You know, you, you start to, you know, we talk about underwriting and sales. This is also sales too. And one of the things that's important here is a lot of what we do day to day doesn't generate an emotional response. When somebody's buying their own home, that you're helping them achieve something that's really important to them and that's driving an emotional response and that helps you, right? However, when you're dealing with investor clients, there's not as much of an emotional response on the transactional basis. But when you're developing a strategy and a game plan for them, then you can say, well, where do you see... You know, I don't actually do this, but close your eyes. Where do you see yourself in five or 10 years? I'm on a beach sipping margaritas. I've got a yacht. Okay, cool. Anyways, let's dial back to like nope. how many properties you want to Back own. to the beach, Kyle. Okay, back, back to, to the, the beach, beach buddy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it's important to, to zoom out and say, where do you want to take this? Because also it helps you develop the strategy as a mortgage broker to say, okay, you want to own one property? Okay, good. We, that's a different strategy than somebody that says, I want to own 20. Because then you can start to say, okay, well, in order to buy 20... We're really going to need to find sources of capital and this strategy has to be very different. Yeah. We won't go into the details of that because it's very high level. But once you understand the strategy, almost certainly step number one is restructuring the residence because you've got to re-amortize it over 30 years. You've got to roll up any debt that they've got and you've got to get the money available for future purchases. And so that's almost always step number one. Step number two is um, is often giving them some suggestions on the on structuring, and so we've talked about the dream. We're going to say, okay, so step number one, we're going to restructure the residence and look into this. While we're doing this, especially if they're self-employed, incorporated, we'll say you need to start to think about where you want to uh, buy the properties in a personal name or a company name. Here are the pros and cons of each. Even better, bonus points, if you can look at their corporate financials and give them some high-level advice on, hey, by the way, I've noticed that your holding company is holding $300,000 of money. Maybe you should use that money to invest in real estate. And that's where the down payment should come from. So there's some high-level things that you can start to look at. Another little, uh, little tip here is that if you do have a client that wants to build a real estate portfolio, if they want to buy 10 properties and you know that some lenders are max number of properties in total, but also max with them, then try not to use the lenders that would be really good for properties number five, six, seven in the first one, two, three. Use some of the non-bank lenders, if you can, that you know won't go past five anyways. Try to use them up if the borrower's debt servicing allows for. Um, and then eventually when you get into the five plus, you've got more lenders available that can do five plus properties as long as no more than four or five are with that lender. So that's that's only really relevant for those clients that are like, I want to build an aggressive portfolio. I want to get to 10, 15, et cetera. I, I guess the the other thing I want to talk about is just if you want to specialize in this field, I want to talk a little bit about the things that can help you do that. Because I've been I've been in this business for a long time, especially with working with investor clients. And there's some tips and and um and tools that I've used that would help me or have helped me quite a bit to uh, to develop myself. And I think the key is you're trying to position yourself as an expert so that people keep coming back over and over again. And anybody that's trying to get financing in this niche then refers you and and you continue to grow and, and build. And, and I would say that this is relevant actually for any niche, but I'm going to talk specifically about the real estate investor niche, about the tools that would help. Um, one of the things that I created was a tool... Um, uh, for reviewing and analyzing the cash flow on a, poten a potential acquisition. So I built a spreadsheet that helps you um, compare and analyze what the, the monthly cash flow would be, the total return and investment would be. And I've actually had a lot of clients say, I'm, Kyle, I'm trying to figure out which property to buy, property A or property B. Put them into the spreadsheet, run the numbers, send them back to me, and I'll give you some feedback on that. So is, is that positioning yourself as the expert? Absolutely. Yep. Right? You're helping them make buying decisions that their realtor or whoever else is not helping them with, and it makes them come back to you over and over again. Kyle likes two things. Alliterations. Oh, yeah. And spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen so many spreadsheets in my life as when you gave me access to your spreadsheet folder and you open it up and it's overwhelming the amount of spreadsheets that Kyle has created. And he's super duper generous with them. So are we able to 
if someone comes onto the Facebook community and asks for it, is that something you'd oh, yeah. be willing to share? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, years and years ago, I used to be a little bit more guarded of my stuff, my cool, my cool shit. For sure. <laughs> Just like my, <laughs> my underwriting knowledge, it was the same thing. When you had to actually, there was no like big platforms where you could get all that information. You got it by sending out an email to all the BDMs at the same time and then collecting it on like Trello or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And then you hoarded it. Like like yeah. smog's gold, right? So <laughs> you're, you're not ever going to release it. But now we're just in a day and age where, you know, it's all about sharing information, um, making sure that everyone does the best job that they can do. Yeah. Um, and fortunately enough, that is information-based in, in regards to our industry. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so I'm happy to share that. Anybody that wants a copy of it, uh, let me know. Another thing that's really important is connecting with lawyers, accountants, and other uh, real estate-focused professionals. You'll find that uh, that if you especially a lot of these self-employed clients, you're going to need to collect their financial statements and all these other documents. I actually really like to involve the accountant in the process to a certain extent by asking uh, the client to say, hey, we need to collect the documents anyways. Here's the list of the information. And what I recommend is you send an email to the accountant and myself authorizing me to talk to the accountant on your behalf. Send them the list of the documents that we need. And then that way, the accountant and I can correspond directly. And sometimes we can even confirm, are you buying this in the company name or the personal name? What's the best strategy for the customer? Uh, a lot of accountants find actually that their recommendation butts heads with the mortgage broker's recommendation because it's easier to get financing, for instance, in a personal name. And so a lot of brokers just recommend that going against what the accountant has suggested. But what you're trying to do is try to get your, yourself and the accountant on the same page and say, hey, Let's collectively look at this because there's pros and cons. The cons of buying in a company name are that it might be more expensive. There might be a higher rate. There might be a fee. There might be all these other costs involved. But let's look at this holistically because if you can save more than the increase in cost on the mortgage and taxes, then you should do that. And it helps mitigate that and prepare and plant the seed to the customer that, hey, buying the company name might result in a higher interest rate, but we want to do what's right for you in total. So getting involved, especially with the accountant, they become uh, referral sources in the future too because they remember that the next time they're getting pushback from a customer saying, oh, my broker saying that I should buy in a personal name. You're like, you know, this other broker seemed to be a bit holistic, holistic on this view. Uh, maybe you should talk to this broker because I had a really good experience with them. They know their stuff and maybe you should talk to them. And so that really helps. So brushing up on... Taxes. On taxes, right? Yeah. And I know we, usually we get, a, if someone asks me tax questions, my immediate canned speech is to go talk to a tax, go talk to a tax accountant because I'm not a professional in regards to taxes and I don't want to be on the hook for giving you false <laughs> tax advice. Yeah. But what you're saying is that maybe take a little bit of time, brush up on your tax skills, have a little bit of more knowledge where you might not be giving the end-all be-all advice, but you are pointing them in the right direction for them making the right decision. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and even if you just have one accountant that you know really well, just say, can we spend 20 minutes each and I'll share everything I know about the mortgage side. And I'd love for you to share more about the tax side and plug some holes, you know, in the, which case would you do this? Or would you do that? And what what is the taxable amount for this and that? I think actually that probably out of all of these things, the tax item is the is the blue ocean strategy because a lot of people don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, they don't like to di deep dive into it. And you always just say, by the way, I'm not an accountant. So you have to go to the accountant and confirm all of this information. However, this is my understanding of it. And so based on what I'm seeing here, these are some of the suggestions and thoughts I have. Now take these to the accountant and nine times out of 10, yeah, accountant agrees. Let's go. Interesting. Yeah, and, and that sets you apart big time. It's not sexy. It is not nearly as sexy as Justin with his nice, thick mustache. It's coming. It's November. Happy <laughs> yeah. November, everybody. November, baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a reason yeah. to get it back. That's all that is. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, taxes definitely is a, is an interesting one and something that I found, I've had a lot of success having a really good understanding of the taxes. Another thing really important, learn how to position deals outside the broker channel. Yep. A lot of our business goes outside the broker channel. It's fee-based business, um, but it we're, we're providing a solution. And these clients when they're A clients and they just want somebody to uh, to be able to take take control of the situation and just get the deal done, they're usually happy to pay a fee if if they know that the deal is going to get done. So we do a lot of fee based business. Probably also another topic for another day because that could be in an in an, its entire episode on its own. But learning how to do fee based business is really important. Absolutely. So underwriting 
underwriting in general is something that's super important in regards to this and everyday business. Um, and knowing the underwriting guidelines, for example, for that BMO, RBC, the people who we don't have access to on the everyday, you have developed some very interesting fintech that's going to be coming out relatively soon. Very soon, That yep. does solve a piece of that problem for brokers who might not have access or have, might not have that knowledge base already. Um, and I wanted to make sure that we got a chance to talk about it. So if you wanted to, to take a quick minute just to let everyone know what you're doing, yep. uh, that'd be great. Yeah, well, the problem that I'm trying, I was trying to solve for myself was when we'd have, a, we'd have an investor client come in and it would take forever to underwrite the deal because you have to enter it into Velocity and change all the numbers and see if it works with one lender Damn, doesn't. Okay, next lender, go through that. And maybe three lenders in, you find a lender that uh, that does work. And that would be probably lucky if you actually find a lender three lenders in. <laughs> um, but maybe there's another lender eight lenders deeper that you would have never gotten to, but actually would have had the a better rate or a better term or would have qualified the client for more money. So, you know, years ago, I actually developed my own spreadsheet and it only had about eight lenders in it, but it would underwrite for all of the different lenders with one set of inputs and it sped up the process immensely. But we actually just, you know, completed our, call it an MVP. Sounds super fancy, but it's minimum viable product. It actually means it's like the, 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 the worst possible iteration of a product that you could possibly use. That's, that still works <laughs> yeah, in one way or another. That actually still works. <laughs> so, you know, the very first version of this was a spreadsheet, but it has 32 lenders in it. And it underwrites for all of the lenders inside and outside the broker channel. Wow. So I've actually been able to use it to stay... A client comes in and says, okay, so here's my situation. Okay, who, which bank are you talking to, BMO? Okay, well, maybe before we jump in and I collect all of your documents and all seven rent rental properties and I collect all this and all that, why don't we just quickly fill in some of the uh, high-level information here on what you have in your portfolio? And I looked at the deal and I said, I would take you right back to BMO, to be honest. And so I'm not going to do that and charge you a fee because you're already talking to BMO. So just go back to BMO and let me know if they decline you. And uh, that saved me a, a ton of time. Absolutely. Uh, also being able to look at my competition. If I know that they're going to be talking to a certain bank, I'm going to know whether the deal is going to work or not. So if they're bluffing, I'm like, yeah, uh, go for it. Go talk to CIBC and let me know what they say and come back. And the client, then they come back with their tail between their legs and they're really willing to, you know, to take whatever you can actually get them, right? Instead of having this grind the whole time, I want a better rate, I want a better rate. So yep. you're not going to qualify with your bank, you know? So very effective tool, but it allows you to underwrite for, you know, now we're turning the the spreadsheet into actual software and rolling out and adding lenders in and, and we'll be eventually rolling this out very, very soon. That's exciting. It's so much, so much. The number of fields you need to enter in to properly underwrite, it's actually insane. The very first version of it, which is inadequate, has 10,000 cells of data just to underwrite for 32 lenders. And we actually, in order to make it more robust, it's probably going to be about double that um, wow. for 32 lenders. Yeah, it's crazy. But it allows you to underwrite for all the lenders all at the same time with one set of inputs, which really makes it a lot easier. And I would say that if you're going to do this, you at least develop your own spreadsheet, or obviously we'll have a tool coming out soon that would help make these deals in particular a lot easier, along with many other types of deals like corporate net income and net worth and whatnot. But uh, but if you're going to specialize in this field, you need to find a way of making it fast and easy to underwrite the deals. That's why I built my own spreadsheet because it was just way too long to underwrite these, these complicated deals over and over and over again. And I eventually started to use it just to deter clients from even starting the process. You know, before you get started, let's see if we're even in the ballpark, you know, or they're coming up for renewal with their bank. And neither of us want to send 200, you know, send and process 200 pages of documents. Yeah. Fill this in. Let me know. I'll let you know if like maybe we're in the ballpark where I can maybe get you a better interest rate and then we can decide to jump in head first and collect all the information. Interesting. Powerful. Super powerful. Yeah, which is, yeah. Uh, I think that's going to be not only a, a game changer as far as the underwriting goes, but the speed at which the lender underwriter can reply, right? Because yep. now you're giving them a deal that's in essence pre-underwritten for that specific lender that you know is going to work. So uh, the lender underwriter isn't going to have to pay someone X number of dollars just to decline the file because it's not going to work. So efficiency is key in this business at uh, the brokerage and the underwriter side. Um, so I think that's going to be a good... Oh, yeah. Good I'm, I'm really excited. This yeah. has been like... It's been a, a big project of mine for 2023 for sure. Yeah. So I'm excited to launch. And so that's what we have going on right now. And now for my favorite part... Ooh, I know. Back in the day! Back in the day! <laughs> and Kyle is <laughs> going to take over on this one. All right. So... Um, I've got two very quick back in the days. I remember when I did my very first 
DCR with a lender called First Line. Yeah. Yeah, First Line. <laughs> For all First you OGs points. out there, you know what we're talking about. Still First cashing line, in those yeah. points. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I think it was 2007, I think, I was doing my first DCR deal. So you're filling in a spreadsheet for the bank and making sure that the debt coverage ratio fits. And so I remember grabbing the information. I said, okay, client, let's get this information. Enter it all in. I've got all this information to, to verify these details. And I send the spreadsheet over to the underwriter. And she said, okay, great. Yep, thanks. Signed off. I said, okay, so... Um, so wait, signed off? Do you... What about the documents to verify it? She's like, Oh, no, no, we just need the spreadsheet. I'm like, what? <laughs> you just need the spreadsheet filled in? Hilarious. So, yeah, that was very interesting to me that you just need a spreadsheet filled in. You wouldn't need any documents to back up the information you wrote into the spreadsheet for the entire rent rental portfolio. So it's like a stated rental it was income. Almost, yeah, literally. <laughs> Could you imagine that, no. Justin? That's nuts. That's crazy. Okay, another story, and I won't name names, but this is somebody that's still in the in the business today in a different uh, different role. But um, he used to work at CIBC, and he was telling me a story about how he had a client that he had an entire desk drawer folder dedicated to this client. The client would walk in, and you say, "Oh, I'm buying another property." He'd get the contract, and probably that's it, because I guess back in the day, you didn't need to actually verify any of the information nope. in your spreadsheet. Just take a picture of that file yeah, exactly, and send it right? in. It's good. Fax that new contract in, the guy had over 80 properties wow. with CIBC. Wow. He just came in like once a month, bought another property, bought another property. And somehow they just kept pumping out the, the money and giving it to him. Can you Crazy. imagine that? No. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. It's You can't even get like more than five residential properties. Maybe, maybe if you're, you know, make a million dollars a year, maybe 10. But like, that's insane to think that it was that easy back then. And he'd have a file folder drawer right next to him in his desk because the client, client would come back so frequently. He would just pull it up, open it up, stick that new property in there. And now the big question. Yeah. Does he still have them? Oh, I'm, I'm, does he still have those 80 properties or has he? Probably. Most most people that bought that many properties back in the day, yep. you know, still own them, right? So I don't know that. And I don't think my, my, uh, my friend knows either, but that was a crazy story to me that Very you could cool. buy that many properties with one lender. Yeah, that's super interesting. And nothing, not something that you're going to have happen nowadays anyway. So yeah, exactly. I love it. Well, thanks for talking about investment financing, eh? Yeah. <laughs> eh? <laughs> <laughs> this is great. And um, as always, I uh, hope everyone has a great day and we will see you guys on the next show. Can't wait. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to sit with us. Hopefully you're able to take a couple things from today's episode, implement it into your everyday, and improve in the areas you need to. For direct interaction with us, please join the conversation through our Facebook community. Check the link in the show notes, and happy brokering. 